Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now, you've written a ton uh, about affirmative action over the years. What is your view on the recent Supreme Court decision in SFFA versus Harvard? A ton may be a bit of an exaggeration, uh, but regarding the Supreme Court decision, I think it's basically correct. Uh, even if you think that some kind of affirmative action may be legal, uh, the kind that we saw at Harvard and the University of North Carolina and also many other institutions uh, just can't possibly be uh, because they're using these extremely vague and crude racial categories uh, to try to determine who's eligible for affirmative action and who isn't. Like, for example, the Asian category actually encompasses more than half of the population of the world, and the categories like Black, Hispanic, and others are equally crude. In addition, the claim that they achieved the benefits of so-called educational diversity, which is the official rationale for these programs, it is, as the Supreme Court pointed out in their opinion at length, extremely vague, difficult to measure, and also difficult to tell to what extent, if any, these preferences really are achieving uh, these benefits. Uh, and so if you look at it, if you believe that racial classification should get any kind of significant judicial scrutiny at all, uh, this kind of thing can't pass. Uh, in addition, uh, even if you think that it's permissible under the Constitution, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, uh, which applies to all educational institutions to get federal funds, it categorically bans all racial discrimination. It doesn't make any exceptions for affirmative action. Uh, there are previous Supreme Court decisions which say, well, the standards under Title VI are the same as those for the 14th Amendment, uh, but those decisions are extremely poorly reasoned. They're so bad that I think Justice Gorsuch was justified in his concurring opinion in saying that uh, maybe those precedents should be overruled or limited, so you could just apply the plain text of Title VI, uh, which if the Supreme Court had done that would have made for a much simpler decision that wouldn't have required 237 pages of opinions uh, that we actually got. Now, you know that the justification for these types of policies is the history of the U.S. and, and the sometimes um, obviously very difficult racial inequities that uh, this country has been engaged in for decades. What's your position on the idea that affirmative action works to rectify these things? That is the argument. So that argument is a better argument than the one that was actually before the Supreme Court, which was, as I said before, the diversity rationale. Uh, that rationale was used because it dates back to a key opinion in the 1978 Supreme Court decision in the Bakke case. Uh, the compensatory justice rationale that you mentioned is a better one, uh, but it runs into several problems. Uh, one is many of the people who benefit from affirmative action today, uh, it's hard to argue that they're truly victims in any kind of massive scale uh, of the kind of historic injustice you mentioned, as many of them are uh, either post-1965 immigrants to the United States or children thereof. And whilst these groups certainly have suffered some racial prejudice, it's hard to argue to have gone through injustices comparable to slavery, Jim Crow, or the like. Uh, a second problem is that many of the victims of affirmative action 
also belong to groups uh, that have a history of being discriminated against, most notably Asian Americans who are among the biggest victims. And uh, in some cases, including Harvard, there is even evidence that part of the policy was to try to uh, limit the number of Asian American students over and above the way that uh, any students who are not in the preferred groups uh, get disadvantaged by these policies. Finally, uh, there is this even deeper philosophical problem, uh, which is that uh, if not for the history of injustice that occurred, uh, none of us or who currently exist, whether white, black, or otherwise, uh, would actually be here because history would have taken a vastly different course uh, and the same sperm would not have met the same egg at the same time, which means that a wholly different set of people would have been produced. And therefore, it's just simply impossible to say, let's rerun history in such a way as to get the world uh, that would have existed absent these great historical injustices, because if somehow we could do that, uh, that would mean none of us would actually exist. Now, I hasten to add, this does not apply to situations where you're actually compensating a person who directly and personally suffered the injustice in question. So for example, the US government was absolutely right in the 1980s to compensate the Japanese Americans who uh, were interned during World War II in detention camps. Uh, and if anything, the problem was they were paid too little compensation for the wrong they suffered. But if we're talking about somehow compensating today's African-Americans uh, for the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, and other historic discrimination, it just simply cannot be done uh, because trying to unwind that history would lead us to contemplate a world where uh, virtually none of the current population in the United States actually exists. Now, you're well aware that one of the consequences from this decision was the legacy admission lawsuit against Harvard that was filed just a few days after the decision came down. Does that lawsuit have any legs? So technically, it's not a lawsuit. It's a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education. I think legally speaking, uh, this lawsuit is, un or complaint rather, is unlikely to prevail uh, because legacy admissions, unlike race discrimination, are not banned either by the Civil Rights Act or by the Constitution. Uh, the argument that is made is, well, they disproportionately benefit white people, which is true. However, if this kind of disparate impact uh, theory was consistently applied to college admissions, the entire system would be upended, for instance, using standardized test scores has a disparate impact, using grades has a disparate impact, uh, almost every measure that they use has a disparate impact on some group or other. Therefore, I'm skeptical that legally speaking, this will prevail, though there are some more creative legal arguments they might be able to make uh, in cases involving public institutions opposed to current one against Harvard. Uh, that said, while legally I think this is unlikely to succeed in the status quo, uh, morally speaking, the case against legacy admissions is actually similar to that against racial preferences. In both cases, uh, we have institutions engaging in discrimination based not on the credentials of the person applying or on any abilities of theirs or anything that might actually be useful to making a better student body. Uh, it's just based on who your parents are. Uh, something that is morally arbitrary that you have no control over. And if it's wrong to do that uh, based on race, based on whether your parents are white or black or Hispanic or whatnot, then the same applies uh, if it's discrimination based on whether mommy or daddy went to Harvard or not.
Now, you wrote a piece for CNN, an opinion piece, a little while ago on the Supreme Court's student loan decision. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, about a year ago or a little bit less, the Biden administration uh, decided to uh, use a statute called the HEROES Act to forgive over $430 billion uh, in uh, federally financed student loan debt. Uh, what the HEROES Act uh, allows the government to do is to, quote, waive or modify uh, the terms of federally backed student loans in a situation uh, where there is a national emergency and that national emergency has affected uh, borrowers in, in terms of their ability to repay. Of course, the national emergency, which was a real emergency, was uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Donald Trump officially declared a national emergency in March of 2020 and only got repealed in May of this year. Uh, and uh, therefore, Biden claimed, well, I have the authority to forgive this massive amount of student loans uh, debt for some 40 million people. Uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, I in a six to three decision, decided against this. I think that was the uh, correct ruling. Uh, first, uh, whatever wave or modify mean, uh, I think they do not allow the Supreme Court uh, to, or not, not the Supreme Court, they don't allow the administration to uh, make changes to student loans on such an enormous scale. This goes way beyond uh, waiver modification. Uh, and uh, as the Supreme Court majority put it, uh, it's a little bit like saying that the uh, French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility. It obviously went way beyond that. And same goes uh, for uh, what Biden tried to do Second, uh, uh, Supreme Court precedent says that uh, when uh, a federal government agency claims the power to decide a, quote, major question of economic or social policy, uh, it will only be ruled that they have the power to do so if Congress has clearly delegated that authority in the statute. And at the very least, the HEROES Act doesn't uh, make that delegation clear. Uh, and third, uh, and I think this is actually the, the biggest problem in the administration's legal position, even though the Supreme Court majority didn't rely on it, uh, for the vast majority of people who would have gotten this loan forgiveness, there is no evidence uh, that they actually were impaired in their ability to repay because of the COVID pandemic. During the pandemic, uh, the vast majority of college graduates, according to data, did not even suffer a reduction in their income at all. Uh, and fewer still uh, had prolonged spells of unemployment. So while there might be some subset of people who might qualify, under, <coughs> sorry, might qualify under that standard, people who did suffer prolonged unemployment, people who had very severe impairments, their health or the like, uh, for the vast majority of the 40 million people who are covered, uh, it just doesn't apply. Uh, and therefore, this is a power grab uh, that the Supreme Court rightly struck down. Ironically, the power grab here is very similar uh, to the one that President Trump made four years ago when he declared a national emergency on the border and then tried to use that as a pretext uh, to uh, transfer federal defense funds to the building of his border wall. At that time, Democrats condemned it for good reason uh, and litigation against it was begun. Some courts ruled against Trump in the lower courts uh, and the litigation was cut short when President Biden rightly, when he took power, terminated the border wall diversion. But sadly, he then tried to repeat a civil 
similar heist only on a larger scale by attempting to divert 40 times more money uh, than uh, you know, than, than Trump did. If this was indefensible and wrong and illegal when Trump tried to do this sort of thing, it also applies uh, when it comes to Biden. Uh, even if you trust Biden with this kind of authority, you probably won't trust the next Republican president who could even be Trump again. Uh, and likewise, if you trust the Republicans, uh, you shouldn't trust, the, you probably don't trust the Democrats. I myself don't trust either. Uh, and it's a fundamental principle of the Constitution uh, that Congress controls the power of the purse, uh, not the person who sits in the White House. I'd like to transition a, a bit to the impact of the media. You wrote uh, back in April amidst Tucker Carlson's departure from Fox News that he is more of a symptom of our problems than a cause. What did you mean by that? So Tucker Carlson tells all sorts of horrible lies uh, and deceptions and untruths or misinformation, whatever you want to call it. He's an egregious figure. But the thing to understand about him and other similar people is that for the most part, they're not persuading the audience of things those people don't already believe. Rather, they're catering to the pre-existing prejudices of their viewers. Uh, in his case, prejudices about things like immigration, uh, about uh, the overturning the 2020 election, uh, and, you know, other uh, false beliefs that are prevalent on the political right. Uh, and this is deeply rooted uh, in the incentives of voters, something I've talked about in my book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, that for the average voter, uh, there's very little incentive to acquire uh, good and accurate information about political issues if the goal is just to be a better voter, uh, because the chance that your vote will make a difference in an election is only uh, in a presidential election, maybe one in 60 million higher in state or local elections, but still not very high. So most voters are what economists call rationally ignorant. They don't acquire a lot of information, but for some it's actually worse than that in that they perhaps do seek out information, but it's not so much for the purpose of becoming a better voter or getting a more accurate view of political issues. It's because they're what I call political fans. Uh, just as sports fans enjoy cheering on their favorite sports team or their favorite player, but they're certainly not very objective, most of them, about evidence that relates to their favorite player or their favorite team. So similarly, there are political fans. They enjoy cheering on their favorite party or their favorite political ideology or, or a leader like Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, they do so for reasons that are largely independent of seeking the truth, and therefore they're highly biased in the way that they evaluate information. Tucker Carlson built a big career by catering to this kind of ignorance and bias, uh, by uh, him being gone from Fox News as he now is as of a couple months ago, doesn't ultimately change the incentives to voters or the incentives of the people who run Fox News who still realize they can make money by catering to this kind of ignorance. Uh, and that is what, for the most part, they've continued to do. And obviously, there are also uh, people who cater to left-wing forms of political bias and ignorance uh, as well. The data on this shows that this problem is not confined uh, to any one political party or one side of the political spectrum. You mentioned a few times uh, Donald Trump. Are the recent indictments of Donald Trump a problem for the U.S. in terms of perception, reality, or neither? So I think at the very least, the indictment 
uh, on classified information has a lot of validity. Uh, and it seems like, uh, at least from currently available uh, evidence that's been made public, it seems like they have him dead to rights. He really did take the classified documents. They really are some of them at least important documents and not just insignificant stuff that got classified by mistake. And moreover, uh, he refused to return the documents over many months uh, when uh, you know, he was repeatedly asked to do so. Uh, and he even uh, talked on audio tape that they, the prosecutors have about how he did that and how he knew the documents were classified. And contrary to some of Trumpist mythology, he never actually did declassify them, as we have him saying in the these audio tapes that they were never declassified. Uh, so uh, I think that's an entirely legitimate indictment. He deserves to go to prison for that, I think. I think he even more deserves to go to prison for much longer, frankly, uh, for things that he has not yet been charged with, but is likely to be in relation to his role in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and various schemes to overturn the 2020 election. If there is one thing uh, that a Democratic head of government or head of state deserves to be indicted for, it's if he loses uh, an election and attempts to stay in power anyway through some combination of force and fraud. That needs to be punished severely for the sake of retribution because the person deserves it and also for the sake of deterrence so as to deter other politicians uh, from doing the same thing. There is also the New York indictment, which probably it's not worth taking the time to go into detail. That's over relatively petty and convoluted stuff. Uh, and you can argue maybe that that indictment uh, is dubious uh, and maybe he doesn't deserve to go to prison for that. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff for which he very much does deserve it. Uh, and I think that is where the focus should be. Now, I was born in Ukraine, as were many Soviet immigrants that came over here in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when the U.S. started letting some Jews in. Now, you wrote an article recently about how the U.S. let in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians, but they could do more. How? Yes. Uh, so like you, I'm from the former Soviet Union, though in my case from Russia, from St. Petersburg. The U.S. under a program called Uniting for Ukraine has let in uh, uh, over 130,000 Ukrainians under that program and another 150,000 or more under uh, other policies uh, uh, since the uh, expansion of the Russian invasion last year. However, uh, what the U.S. Uh, has not done is given those people permanent residency rights or permanent work rights. Currently, for the ones under the Uniting for Ukraine program, uh, they only have two-year residency and work permits, which are going to begin to expire uh, for many of them next year. Uh, and obviously, making this permanent uh, would be extremely beneficial, both for the Ukrainian migrants themselves, uh, it will enable them to escape deportation and continue working legally, and also for their contribution uh, to our economy, uh, because obviously, if they can't work legally, they can't contribute as much. You don't have to be an economist to see uh, why that is the case. More generally, uh, the policies that have been used to help Ukrainian migrants should be expanded to other groups fleeing war, uh, tyranny, oppression, and violence. Uh, the policy has actually been expanded to those from four Latin American nations, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti, uh, but it can be expanded further, including, among other things, covering, uh, covering Russians uh, fleeing Vladimir Putin's 
uh, tyrannical regime should become more oppressive since the war has started. Uh, here too, we can do well by doing good. Those people can contribute to our economy and society just as the Ukrainians are doing. Uh, and also letting them in would be a, uh, an important victory in the war of ideas against Putin's dictatorship and that of other authoritarian states. Uh, U.S. policymakers well understood this during the Cold War, which is why you and I uh, and our families are in the United States. Uh, but unfortunately, many of them, including especially many in the Republican Party, uh, have lost sight of this uh, since then. Do you think Vladimir Putin will ever be held accountable, right? There have been warrants issued by international courts. Folks view those as largely symbolic without any real legal authority. What say you? It's hard to say. Uh, I think so long as he's the ruler of Russia, he probably will not be held accountable, at least not in any significant way, certainly will not be tried in any court. However, uh, his grip on power may be looser than uh, people think, or at least than we used to think. We saw the uh, coup by his own protege, Yevgeny Prigozhin, just a few weeks ago. That coup uh, didn't ultimately succeed. Uh, but interestingly, Prigozhin actually uh, was able to make a deal with Putin. The fact that Putin had to make a deal with a guy who was marching on Moscow, uh, seemingly to overthrow him, is not a sign of strength for Putin. So I don't know what's going to happen with Putin. Maybe he'll succeed in staying in power. Maybe he won't. Uh, but if he gets overthrown, uh, then you know it is possible that he might ultimately be tried either in Russia or even uh, abroad. Putin himself, in his speech during the Prigozhin coup crisis, he analogized the situation to 1917. If that analogy holds, and I don't know if it will or not, but if it holds, then Putin is kind of in the role of Tsar Nicholas II, uh, and we all know what happened to him. Uh, he did not end up having a happy fate, uh, and I certainly wish the same fate on Putin, uh, but I don't know uh, if it's actually going to go that way or not. Now, back in 2022, your colleague at GMU wrote an article uh, in which he indicated that the main factor that divides what are called classic liberals and what are called the new right is the attitude that these folks have towards what are called elites. I use all these words and phrases and quotes. Why did you disagree with that? So the, the, the person who wrote this was uh, Tyler Cowan, who's a professor of economics at George Mason. He's a great scholar and he has a lot of interesting ideas. But in this case, I think he's largely wrong. Uh, and I answered uh, him at the Vola Conspiracy blog and the Reason website where you can read this. Uh, if you think about the new right, uh, obviously that's a vague term and it could encompass a lot of people. Uh, but uh, I think Tyler was referring primarily to so-called national conservatives who have tried to move traditional American conservatism into a nationalistic direction. Uh, and I think what separates them both from libertarians and also from uh, previous American conservatives, most of them, is not that they're suspicious of elites uh, or want to take away the power of elites. It's rather that they're nationalistic uh, and they want to reframe America uh, on the same uh, ideology as 
that of many European nationalists, which is as a nation uh, that tries to serve the interests of a particular ethnic or racial or cultural group, much as French nationalists, for example, say to France is all about ethnically French people, or German nationalists say it's about ethnic Germans, uh, or Vladimir Putin says that, you know, the Russian government stands for the so-called Russian world, uh, Russian speaking and Russian, uh, and ethnically Russian people, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, these new nationalists or new conservatives, who want to, whatever you want to call them, national conservatives, uh, they want to reframe the United States along similar lines. Uh, and so long as the elites do the kind of things that these people like, they're perfectly happy concentrating vast power in the hands of elites. Uh, for instance, they favor a very broad executive power. They cheered on Donald Trump when he used it. They favor uh, such ideas as industrial policy, which means concentrating power in the hands of government regulators to promote favored industries. They favor protectionism, uh, which promotes both uh, powerful interest groups in the private sector, industries that lobby for the protectionism, plus also government officials who get to decide uh, which uh, industries get protected and how much. So there's no real evidence that these people are hostile to elite power as such, as opposed to merely being hostile to elites uh, on the other side of the political spectrum. If anything, uh, libertarians are more anti-elite uh, than these people are because we favor limiting government power regardless of which particular set of elites is, is, in, is in power, uh, as opposed to just saying, well, we want an even more powerful elite than currently exists, uh, so long as it's our elites who are doing the wielding of that power. I'd like to finish up by discussing the First Amendment. Um, is free speech under attack by colleges, private entities, when you talk about the government, obviously you have certain constitutional protections there directly, but is the spirit of the First Amendment something that you see eroding around the country? In some senses, yes, in other senses, no. In terms of the actual legal doctrine of free speech, uh, particularly in the federal courts, there's probably more protection for freedom of speech now than perhaps almost at any time in American history. But it is true that important forces both on the political right and the political left have become more suspicious of free speech and more willing to use government power to suppress it uh, when they don't like what's being said. We see that on the left in efforts to uh, attack hate speech or what they call misinformation and the like, but we see it also on the right in things like uh, conservative states like Texas and Florida enacting laws requiring uh, uh, tech platforms to host speech that they don't approve of, uh, or in the Florida Stop Woke Act, which restricts even what private employers are allowed to say uh, about various kinds of racial issues. And there are uh, other kinds of examples as well. So I think you're right that in various left and right wing quarters, uh, the spirit of free speech, if you want to call it, has been eroded. Uh, for the most part, that has not resulted in changes in legal doctrine, though it has resulted in some harmful state laws, which are being challenged in court, uh, and I think in most cases are unlikely to prevail. Uh, but obviously, if this trend continues, 
It will eventually have an impact on judicial decisions uh, because courts are in some ways a lagging indicator of where political parties stand. Uh, that you know, obviously, U.S. federal judges they serve for life. Uh, so many, most of the current federal judges were appointed during periods when both the Democrats and the Republicans had at least a somewhat stronger commitment to free speech than many of them do now. Uh, if current trends continue, we could 10, 15, 20 years from now, perhaps see a judiciary which is less sympathetic to freedom of speech, uh, especially if uh, when judicial appointments are made by future administrations, uh, they try to uh, use the new approach to free speech as a kind of litmus test for who you appoint and uh, who you don't. Professor, I'd like to thank you for your time. Incredibly insightful. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Great questions.